You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. Hoping everyone is good. I'm feeling good today. The title of today's show is Building to the Future Home Standard. And we're joined by Saul Humphrey, who is managing partner of Saul Humphrey LLP, a professional consultancy practice focused on leading sustainable success. Welcome to the show, Saul. How are you? Yeah, very well, Paul. I'm uh, delighted to be here, even though I was uh, the 62nd choice in your... Oh, yeah. Now, listen, for for people who have been listening to the show for a long time, they'll realise that the original format of the show was that I was interviewed for the first six or seven episodes, which means you're 55th on the list. Oh, oh I, feel so, I feel so much better already, Paul. But Chris, where have I'm... you been all of my life? Eh? Where have you been? <laughs> Hiding in Norfolk, I apologise. Exactly, yeah. You see, that's my network doesn't ex- extend, or it didn't until I met you now. But I am super, super excited to have you on the show, uh, Saul, because you are a man with quite possibly the most impressive CV I have seen. I mean, you are a fellow of the RICS, CIOB, ICE, RS. I'm getting tired just even saying yeah, it. How have enough. you managed to acquire all of these? Well, you just send some money every year and they send you some certificates. It's very easy. <laughs> Is that it? God, I, I'm, I'm skinned. I can't, I can't do it. No, but on a, on a serious note, you are affiliated to so many different of the uh, practices, aren't you, in institutions? It's amazing. I, I may have been because I wasn't that good at any of them individually. So I thought I'd be a jack of all trades. You are far, far too modest. So that, that, that is for sure. And you're, you have a PhD as well. What did you do your PhD in? Yeah, um, I, I studied um, procurement and profit from a contractor's perspective at Loughborough, which was, again, like many PhDs are, a very narrow niche area of research. But I think there is some correlation between a, a return from a contractor's perspective and from a client's, depending on the method of procurement that's adopted. So sorry to be so um, techie in that regard and so narrow and niche. But uh, No, you're preaching to the choir here. That was what it was all about. And it was many years ago, and it took me a long while to do it because it was um, all done part-time whilst in employment. And uh, in, in the spare time, a PhD oh, really? is a difficult I did, thing I to did do. the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's hard enough doing a degree spare in your spare time, which is what I did, let alone a PhD. So all, all credit to you. And alongside all of those accreditations that you have just so everyone understands who you are what you do can you tell us a little bit about you your experience and what you're doing now yeah uh, me uh, married two children um all good children are sort you of know a- you're the first person Saul. sorry to interrupt you you're the first person that has started it talking about the personal life i like that <laughs> well i might as well be honest about everything um yeah so yeah uh, happy in all that regard in terms of work um spent my working career predominantly with a family-owned contractor in the east of england had a great time there uh, then moved to a national contractor a plc had a really good time there for two years and then started my own consultancy about three years ago uh, slightly different because 
project managing from a client's perspective is different to what it is from a contractor's perspective. I've, I've learned a lot about the bits I didn't know, and it's been fun. It's been interesting. And I've been able to be a bit more selective to do the things that I want to do rather than deliver what somebody else asks. So that's been interesting too. So as I understand it, you have spent a huge amount of time in your career or the bulk of your career at main contractors leading leading projects from a main contractor's perspective and you're now kind of client side advisor is it employer's agent like what's your role now that's right yeah a bit of that yeah that's right so um i spent 33 years with a company called rg carter in the east of england um they're about 300 million pounds a year turnover um lovely family-owned firm just past their 100th year anniversary i wasn't there for the whole hundred years but it did seem that at times <laughs> uh, but yeah uh, you were there company. for a fair chunk of it by the oh, time, i was right? yeah i was i was just getting the hang of it but I, I was regional director there and looked after the eastern side of that business and um and enjoyed every minute the i then moved to uh, morgan sindel uh, plc national contractor who you'd know about uh, they also over uh, they also own overbury and lovell and uh, other subsidiaries and cumulatively do about three three billion pounds every year so about 10 times bigger but my role wasn't dissimilar i was again looking after the east of england and enjoyed that too um so but i think it is important that you enjoy what you do if the, if the job is a job and you hate it i think life would be horrible so i've been very lucky to enjoy enjoy the clients enjoy the projects enjoy the people i work with but why the change then yeah, well, um, circumstance. I think, again, to be really honest, there's often a push factor. Something makes you do something else. And uh, I, I felt a sense that I need to do something else when I joined Morgan Sindel. And I need to do something else when I left. And uh, deciding to go on my own was not really that strategic. It was, I'll do this for a little while until I decide what I'm going to do next. And then doing the, 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 the little while has become three years, and, that's, uh, and I'm really enjoying it. It's um, it's been good delivering a client from uh, delivering a project from a client's perspective is different. I'm no longer focused just on the sharp end delivery, but shaping the project, shaping the master plan, getting involved in the design, picking the design team, getting involved in the funding, getting involved in the sales disposal at the other a end. A completely so, different perspective, I guess. I've learned I've learned a lot more about the two extreme ends of the development cycle, where I used to be very much focused on the middle bit, the bricks and mortar, the cranes, the concrete. Yeah. So it's been great. And in that time, I guess I've, I've evolved a bit as a human being, and uh, maybe I now can reflect and think about what's really important and what sort of projects I should deliver and for what sort of clients. And lucky enough, I know enough people and have enough opportunities to be quite selective and to pick the things I, that I think make the best difference that align well. What is important to you and what changed your perspective? I've probably always had a reasonable blend of doing additional activities. In other regards, I've, I chair a thing called Building Growth, which is uh, the local enterprise partnerships sector group for the construction and housing industry. I'm a governor of a college. I'm a NED director of a couple of other companies. So I've probably always had a breadth of interests. How do you find the time to do all of these <laughs> things, alongside your PhD and all, all of your institutional Yeah, work? well, I don't do enough of those. So there's always weekends and nights, aren't there? But with that, you, you start to appreciate what's important. And I, I guess I now really appreciate that I, I worry about the, the, the climate battle that we face. So I worry about sustainability as well as just building homes or just building buildings. And, and the world that you're leaving your two children, effectively, or absolutely. building for your two children. Yeah, yeah. And we can do better. We can make a bigger impact. The, the, the phrase, I'll paraphrase it badly, but Winston Churchill said something like, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. 
and I think with that in mind, we have a we have a duty and opportunity to do a lot better, and we could and we should. So I'm able to decline opportunities that don't allow me to do that, and accept the ones that do. That makes perfect sense, which means that which is why you have a smile on your face and why you're now enjoying what what you do by the sounds of things. But I'm interested to understand. So you're now being very selective about the projects that you work on, and they must hit certain criteria for you to be feel like it's, you're doing the right thing for the world and for yourself by the sounds of things, which does sound great. I'm interested to understand, could you describe how you look back on your time, your 35 years at RG Carter and Morgan Sindel, and how you approach things then and how that makes you feel reflecting on it? Yeah. So if I look back at the, the time at Carter's, the family-owned business was, was very much focused on delivering buildings in an efficient and lean manner so that you always had that sharp edge to deliver a maker profit. Uh, construction margins are small, and if you're in any way inefficient or lethargic or um, poorly planned or you've got the wrong supply chain, then you can get in a muddle really quickly. So, You're knackered. yeah, yeah. Just to, to deliver successful growth and margins year on year, year on year, you had to be good. But I don't mean that as an arrogant statement. I mean good and having good teams, good people. I was always very lucky to have good people around me, and their endeavours uh, enabled us to have good results for three decades. Morgan Center was slightly different. The PLC mentality, the 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 focus was more strategic. Um, it was more broad in terms of aspiring to win long-term contracts, public sector contracts, frameworks, a bigger focus on social value, commendable um, and different. So I, I took different experiences and different learning experience from both organisations and enjoyed them both and learned a lot from them. And was there a shift in mentality by the sounds of it between RG Carter to Morgan Sindel in terms of like that? social value you talked about which is then you've further jumped again now by the sounds of it in terms of what you're looking to create I think, yeah i think that's a good point paul i think it probably is an evolution and at the same time um as that's been happening greta thunberg's been getting older um we've been, She's been getting in your ear has she <laughs> she has um she keeps calling you know, you know what it's like um, <laughs> But you know, joking aside, I think we're now all much more conscious as human, as human beings of the impact of carbon and climate change than, I, than we were 10 years ago. So I think the, the paradigm has shifted. It has, it has. And your professional paradigm has shifted as well in that you're no longer contracting, you're advising the client, which means you have even more influence. Is there, I'm a subcontractor by experience, so... I feel like I was I got squeezed even more than the main contractors would probably feel like they got squeezed right right at the bottom of the of the funnel and it's really difficult to be a contractor whether you're sub or main like there's so many variables so many challenges it's not huge huge margins and it's quite difficult to take that longer term strategic view and be selective is there something that clients can be doing to to help your RG Carters, your Morgan Sindels and everyone around them to work in a better way to achieve sustainability goals? Yeah, it's a really good question, Paul. I think the, the traditional race to the bottom, the single stage tender, lowest price wins, really is That's isn't still helpful. construction though, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's it still is. There. It, it is, but I think less so. And I think in a, in a world now that is so uncertain 
the, the price of plasterboard, the availability of an air source heat pump. There's, there's 101 things that are uncertain. The, the, the sudden increased price on steel, the, the, the ability to measure carbon, to understand operational embodied carbon, to think about the, the real delivery priorities. There's so much more to it than just price. And I think, therefore, it would be good to understand a contractor's um, desires and needs and risks and to collaborate more closely to get better results. And when you're advising your clients about contractors, what are you looking for in them? What makes a good match? Yeah, a long-term desire to collaborate and work together and have long-term success. I think if we're looking for a short-term maximum profit on one project at all costs, that is not going to work. But if you've got a longer-term strategic relationship that's built on trust and collaboration, uh, honesty, more partnering-type qualities, then I think there's a much greater chance of long-term success. I'm not for one second, however, suggesting that we should just get awfully cosy with a pet contractor and uh, that you know, blank checks are passed. I think there needs to be a degree of competitive tension um, to keep us keen and keep us efficient. But I think both sides can work better together. But not a, the traditional race to the bottom kind of approach. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And I understand you're now working almost exclusively, if not exclusively, on projects where you work to the future home standard. Yeah, and or Briam Outstanding, um, or Passive House, or Letty, or just really high sustainable aspirations. I have got a lot of future home standard projects, um, but it's not the only standard that works, and uh, and it's not entirely clear where the future home standard is going to stand still and crystallise and be fixed, but we're working towards the current understanding of what future homes and building standard will look like. And can you talk to us about what, I'm a bit ignorant on the topic of the future home standard, and what specifically is it? How does it work? God, good question. Um, it will sit alongside building regs, and it will complement and support Part L. And essentially, if we deliver the aspirations that are set, we'll reduce carbon emissions by circa 75 to 80%. And it's due to come in 2025. The consultations are finished, and I think we're, we're fine-tuning and writing up the, the, the words that will be applied. There's an interim step with Part L um, improving in the shorter term to uh, reduce our carbon emissions uh, on the journey towards future home standards. And it's actually now future homes and building standards. It's not just homes that would be captured by the change. Does it, does it replace the building regs? Or do the building regs now say you have to do this? I think building regs will, part L, will essentially be replaced by the future homes and building standard so that we can uh, read it together and, and combine. And it won't, if it's applied the way it's intended, uh, part F will also be adjusted to to accommodate it. And with that, we'll have a much better focus on fabric first principles. We'll have excellent U values through the floors and roofs and walls and glazing and doors. We'll have much more renewable energy. We're going to focus on air source and ground source heat pumps and um, no combi boilers. We'll wait to see if gas is allowed or not. Um, there was talk that gas boilers would be banned from 2025. I'm not sure that's entirely clear. Ambitious. Um, yeah. yeah. But in, you know, with what's happened in, after the, the Ukraine tragedy, it's interesting that our dependency on fossil fuels uh, now we're probably accelerating quite... the conversation away from it, isn't it? Which is it is, it is. an interesting outturn, really, from all, all, everything that is going on there. It's <clears throat> so just to be clear, 
the future home standard, and don't take this the wrong way, I don't mean it the wrong way at all, is not some wishy-washy uh, standard or desire that people who are sustainable, con- sustainably construction-focused are talking about. This is something that is going to impact every single residential project, every single project moving forward. These are the new regs, so we need to get on board and get on with it, right? Absolutely. It will be the new minimum standard. It won't be an optional. At the moment, uh, my, my clients are applying it in advance because they believe it's the right thing to do. It, very soon, there'll be no choice. Uh, everyone will have to do it if you want to build uh, at all. So you're ahead of the curve, effectively. You're, 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 you're building a business and you're building projects, which is effectively getting on board with these standards today instead of in 2025. That's right. And I, and I think there's a real logic in doing that. I mean, being, being an early adopter can be quite dangerous. However, I, I do think there's a genuine value enhancement in building sustainably. I think the homes, the buildings of the future will be worth considerably more if they can demonstrate uh, genuine green credentials. And therefore, if you're going to own and operate the, the building, why wouldn't you build it sustainably? So yeah, that's just my belief and it's shared by my clients, fortunately. No, I com- I, com- I completely agree with you. We we um there was a study one of our previous guests talked about which said that I think it was Eon did it, which was that eighty nine percent of prospective buyers want a sustainable home, forty nine percent, fifty percent are willing to spend more for a sustainable home. So not only not only does it make sense in that regard, but I think it really makes sense what you're doing. Obviously, it's coming from a point of passion, which is even more admirable. But the the reality is you're commercially getting ahead of the game by being an early adopter in this thing in this new regulation because it's something that is it's coming and i'm interested to talk a little bit more Saul, about uh, like the mentality of the future homes standard and so on but let's do more of that after this break hello it's me again I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded Sealink with my best mate Chris. Chris and I, we're both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you, or someone you know, tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. So, Saul, what I'm interested about this conversation, I'd actually, this is why I'm in a very fortunate position to be speaking to interesting people like yourself each week, because we were talking about ESG, and we were talking about ESG in the context of finance and getting development finance. And we were talking in September about with a broker about how it was a thing that was coming and people needed to be mindful of it because there, there's an opportunity, right? We then talked again in February and lo and behold, real 
gains to be made on development finance if you're an ESG-led development, so environmental social governance. So sim- similar thing, right? And what we're talking about here is the new building regs that are coming down the line in three years' time. It's a ticking time bomb that is going to go off and many people listening, main contractors, subcontractors, are going to have to start adopting these methodologies because that it, it's it's going to be the building reg. So you're also talking about Briam, excellent. How is that now influencing you and projects that you work on? Yeah, I think Briam is another excellent measure that can be applied to um, push the boundaries of sustainability and also social inclusion and biodiversity and habitats and the other issues that address our quest for sustainability. It's not all about carbon. And you know, those 17 sustainable development goals that we're familiar with, construction can nail nine of those. I, I completely agree with your observations about ESG and how that's becoming such a priority. I'm, I'm pleased to be in the process of relisting my own business as a B Corp. I look at companies like IKEA and, uh, IKEA and Patagonia and think I, I admire their, their blend of putting purpose ahead of profit and that people profit place type mindset and thinking is, I think, the right way to go. So the ESG, uh, ESG criteria sits alongside that beautifully, as does Letty, as does Passive House, as does Briam. But I don't think there's a right or wrong solution. I think they've all got their place. And it's finding the right standard to suit the aspiration and the budget and hopefully end up with an EPC certificate of A or thereabouts at the end of it. And we'll have all the benefits of that. Essentially, you talked about the time bomb of future home standard, like it was some horrible (laughs) detonation that was around the corner. Um, I mean, I I think it's great that you give it that sense of urgency because there is a a risk of complacency in regard. You don't like me making it seem like a a bloodbath that's about to come around the corner. Well, I think some people would like to see it that way. Some people would say it's not affordable, it's not viable, it's going to stop development. And all of that is partly true. It does have an impact. At the moment, we can't deliver net zero at no cost, but we can make progress and we can shift the dial. And you know, our iceberg is melting, to quote John Cotter. We've, we've got to do something to address that. And this is, this is a good opportunity. We can wait till 2025 and, and protest and argue and try and argue that we shouldn't do it, or we can, or we can get ahead, or we can get ahead and start shifting our, our focus towards it. Welcome it. Which, which, which I, I, I completely agree, and rest assured, I don't see it as a disaster coming down the line, quite the opposite. But I'm interested in something that you said there, in that you talk about you're very selective with projects um, and the projects that you go ahead on and don't. And some people will say it's putting a, it's hampering development um, because this is making development more expensive. If a client comes to you and says, I've got this project and I want, I want to do it, and it doesn't tick the boxes in your mind that suits. Are you saying you need to do X, Y, and Z, and we can talk, and X, Y, and Z is a solution that, yes, comes with a bit more cost, but is better? How, how do you manage that? Because are you actually trying to say, rather than just saying, I'll do the ones that I want to do, are you trying to say to the ones that you don't, look, this is a mentality, you need to shift? Absolutely. Uh, a gentle persuasion. And, and normally the clients have, have, have probably approached me because they think I can help them achieve their aims rather than the other way around. But uh, 
But the, I think the more intelligent clients want to do the right thing as well. And they're trying to um, secure their ESG credentials, their shareholder value, their, their impact on society. But I think we, we now know that the built environment is responsible for something like 38, 39% of all greenhouse gas emissions. So that's not the first time you've heard that. It's not um, a nice statistic to have thrown in, in our industry's face, I know, is but it? Let's just, let's just say it again. It's circa 40% of all emissions are down to us. Yeah, that's, it's just remarkable. Isn't it something <laughs> yeah. like uh, 10% is down just to concrete? Yeah, it is. Um, certainly the embodied carbon, that bit that goes into the process of making the buildings, perhaps about a third of the total emissions. So... And at the moment, it's a third of current emissions. But if we get the, um, the the grid to be purely on wind turbines and PV and solar, and we could argue nuclear, then the impact of the embodied carbon gets even higher. So yeah, I think concrete on its own, or the cement within the concrete, is responsible for about seven percent of all global emissions on its own. If, it, if if cement was a concrete, it would be the third world's worst polluter. If it was a if it was a country right behind China and America, cement. If it was a country, just be China, America, then comes. That, I mean, it's just it's just <laughs> yeah. harrowing to think about. But you know, the uh, the more the more I dwell on this topic, right? If I put together the different conversations I am having, so and I'm a developer. There's only one way my mind is going to be working. So number one, ESG. You're going to get cheaper development finance if you do it right. Number two, the building regs are changing and they're going to be different in three years' time. Tick-tock, tick-tock, my, my, my time bump. Um, and on top of all of that, 50%, well, 90% of people buying a house currently want it to be sustainable and 50% are willing to pay more. So even if it does cost you more today, it will the cost will balance out in a few years' time as they always do. But you're still going to sell at a higher price today to 50% of people. So why not seize the moment and shift your mindset now? Paul, you're preaching to the converted. Um, <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's interesting. We, we, we look at the things that shape our mindset and our thinking and um, those structural drivers that are affecting our, our very being. And um, I look at construction and the demographic reality that we've got an aging workforce. And I think we have roughly twice as many people retire and leave our industry as we have join it. So we've also got to think about how we put those buildings together. If we've got less people to do the work, We've got to do more in terms of modern methods of construction. I know Mark Farmer spoke far more eloquently about that subject than I ever will. But we've, we've got to embrace DFMA. We've got to embrace change, difference, to be more efficient. But we've got the fourth industrial revolution and we've got artificial intelligence and we've got all that could bring. Whether we're ever going to three... What do you mean the fourth industrial revolution? Uh, AI. I mean artificial intelligence. I mean the, um, the change that could have to the whole of society. And I don't know if you, you've listened to Stuart Russell's reflections, but they can be awe-inspiring and brilliant, Terrifying. or it can be as scary as hell. <laughs> yeah. So pick which one. A bit one of both, isn't want. it? Bit it's of a bit both, of both. Bit yeah. of both. But it's happening. Yeah. And the other huge change I think we've got on the horizon is the environmental change and the realization that we have to do something different. We're now seeing this these shifts in global economic power. Um, we know what's happening in Russia. We've seen the growing strength of China. And we've got this desire to people to live in cities, this quest to be urbanised. There's lots of things happening out there um, that we need to be abreast of and change and shift and be in front of. 
um, to do the right thing. It just strikes me that the environmental the environmental subject is like almost like a generational opportunity for people who are building like this you, like you can make a change now for the better but also commercially there is a real opportunity there to to benefit from it and to be at the front of it which you, is something that you're doing i can see that it, that is something that it's it's a mentality more than anything this isn't something this isn't the time bomb that i'm talking about it isn't the negative thing coming down the line this is actually the the thing that is coming down the line is good for us all uh it's it is changing the way we all have to build and develop and design but it's going to happen and people are trying to make benefits your clients want this so get ahead of the game get on board it's like the game is already getting played by people like yourself right that's right but we are still focusing a lot on new build and we know that the 2050 target date where we should have uh, resolved the the carbon crisis and got it all back in order. But we know that 80% of the homes that we live in today will still be there in 2050. So we're talking about the 20% of the new buildings and making them greener and that's better. But goodness, we've got a challenge on to do the retrofit of the existing stock. Um, that, that is a huge, huge challenge that it feels like isn't, it isn't getting as much attention as it needs to. It's definitely not getting the same airtime, is it? I mean, it's, one, it's funny because one of the, I think the way that we met, in fact, was an article that you shared, which was titled, Easy Win Design Changes Can Cut Embodied Carbon in Developments by 20%. I think it was. It was so it was like an easy, it, it was a list of like, these are the things that you can do. Could you talk to us about that? And like, does, is, is there things that you do on your developments to get the, in inverted commas, the easy wins? Yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, the article I shared, I have to confess, was not mine. Um, I'm, I'm quite <laughs> happy to to share other people's great ideas. That's and good. I like that. Initiatives. I, yeah. I should I should say that I think that was um, a 750 house site in Cambridgeshire, and it was a, a JV with Arcadis, Bureau, Happold, Barrett Homes, and Grosvenor. And I think their research was that the easy wins that adopted could reduce embodied carbon by 20. percent and that saving came at just 0.6% cost. So hardly any cost and a huge carbon saving. Now, a big part of that is because they did less. They said, we don't need to have as many roads and parking bays. And it's kind of into the behavioural economics of, um, can we stop the dependency on the car? And if we can do that, we don't need as many parking bays, we don't need what such wide roads. So building How do you what, stop the dependency on the car, though? Well, that's a really good question. So um, one of my clients then, is a company called Human Nature, and they've got a, a fantastically sustainable place they're developing in Lewis, uh, down on the south coast, and another one near to me at Hethel in Norfolk, which they're trying to get through the planning process. But their quest is not to just build another few hundred houses. It's to build the most sustainable place in Europe. Um, How? That, what, well, what's that, that look like? Well, let me, let me give you an example of the one at Hethel near, near Norfolk. It's, um, it looks like a place which happens to be beautifully located, very near to a city, very near to some employment centres. Lotus cars are just down the road and their EVs are coming. There's an innovation centre just down the road where hundreds of people are employed. There's another one coming, Norwich Energy Innovation Park, which I'm pleased to be involved with, which is a Brian outstanding building, where a few more hundred people would be involved. So there'll be employment directly next to this huge 950-acre site. 
So people will be able to walk or cycle to their workplace. And those who have to go further away can still cycle to Norwich in about 20 minutes. And they can get the train from Wyndham train station to Cambridge to London. And they can walk to the train station. The train station's connected to the site. So all that infrastructure is already there. The, the junction on the A11 already has capacity for 3,000 more homes. So we haven't got to spend more money and destroy the planet in placing more uh, asphalt and concrete to create it, because it's already there. And, and it will have, but one of its sort of thinking, how do, you, how do you shift the mindset? How do you change it? Well, as an example, you build the best bike shop in the world at the heart of the place. You make cycling aspirational. You put brilliant fitness trails. You have connected. You have great walking, great cycling, great, great social space. So I think it's not just about how you build the buildings. It's about how you create the place. Because I was going to say that, you know, like everything you just described there, you know, you might be able to walk to work. You might be able to cycle to work or Norwich is a 20-minute cycle down, down the road. I was thinking, like, you know, it's all good and well, but... Most people don't want to do a twenty-minute cycle to work. So then, but then, if you are actually saying this in this community, this is what we do, and it's a great thing, and it's actually, you know, then it does kind of shift. I'm still skeptical about that specifically, but I, I, I understand it. I agree. But in addition to that, you can create the really good electric vehicle charging points with the car sharing, the car share clubs. That you can stop that dependency on the car to the same degree. Um, and I think you create a culture where people want to do the right thing together. So You've yeah, got to I wean us off it, haven't you? The, the, it's we have. just the, so, the gross comfort that we have all started to believe, or someone of my age, I've grown up in it for my entire, entire life. It's everything has been so easy and no questions have been asked. Whereas now it's, it is that thing where we're actually asking ourselves, is that really how we want to be? That's right. And do we need to um, use the traditional concrete that we always used to? Do we need to have so many roads, so much parking? Do we need, can, can, we, re, can we use some more recycled material? Can we be really brave and use timber, which has sequestered carbon all of its life, um, and use that timber from a recyclable source? Could we, can we use hemp? Is that really brave? Well, it shouldn't be. It's, uh, in other parts of the world, it's far from brave. It's, it's absolutely the normal thing to do. I think uh, that the Grenfell tragedy made us think twice about using timber in, a, in the envelope of a structure, particularly over 18 metres. It's interesting that Grenfell didn't contain a lot of timber. Timber wasn't the problem. Yes, um, it was largely aluminium cladding, wasn't it? Absolutely. So I think or we need to be careful. Yeah. We don't overreact to that in the wrong way. And uh, whilst that was... An, Particularly an, for low-rise developments such as the ones you're describing, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And there's no reason why we, we are... You know, up to 11 metres, there's no question. We're able to carry on the way we are. But I think we also have the opportunity to think about products like hemp. Now, licensing and obtaining hemp in a safe and secure manner is another wonderful opportunity to use a more sustainable material to build our homes. So I think there's lots of things we can do. And that example I was alluding to earlier about the, um, the easy wins, some of it is that. It's just doing less, doing the right thing, creating the right place and um, having less um, new material. I mean, the, the greenest house we've ever built is the one that was built before. It's not, you, <laughs> yeah. you, don't, don't build a new one unless you have to. Um, I'm with you, you I'm do, with you. Yeah, so I think, you know, starting from that position of zero um, and asking if you can do it in a more fundamentally different way is the right thing to do. But if you are going to build new homes, then we have a duty to do them properly. 
You're a fascinating individual, so I, 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 I completely, I can really see the passion that you have that's coming through for it, and I could talk to you for a long time. I only have one more question for you, though. So, in a few weeks' time, I think it's about a month, actually, I'm, I'm due to sit down on this show with the head of architecture from the UK government. I'd be interested to know what question you would ask her if you had the chance to speak with her. I would ask at what point they're going to put embodied carbon into their thinking. Because at the moment, the future home standard doesn't touch it. There was a private member's bill on its way through government um, about a week ago. Unfortunately, that stalled. The individual that was about to present it was reshuffled and had a new position and that put him into conflict with the paper that he was proposing. Um, fortunately, another Norfolk MP, uh, Jerome Mayhew, picked up the Oh, baton. I think I saw that, actually, yeah. See it? So yeah. It, was a, it was a seamless pass. It was nicely delivered. Um, Duncan Baker was unable to deliver the paper, but Jerome Mayhew was no going to. So his private member's bill is going to suggest that we address embodied carbon now. And I think you know, it's, now is the time. Uh, it's, it was a part Z amendment to building regs. It's something we could do quite simply. So I would, I would urge you to incorporate that in your questions, if you don't mind, Paul. Okay. Well, you know, look, I've been going around speaking to fascinating people like you once a week with, the, with this interview that I have coming up in mind. I've just been asking everyone to give me interesting uh, questions sorry, to ask. I imagine, you, and that I is imagine one, you've now got 62 questions. She's going she's gonna to have a lot, a lot of questions, yeah. But no, look, so it has been absolute pleasure to have you on the show i'll be putting uh saul's details in the podcast description the episode description get in touch with him and uh thank you so much for coming on the show Saul. it's a real pleasure to have had you it's been a delight thank you paul thanks very much and guys i'm gonna do it again i'm gonna ask if i can for you guys to leave a review hopefully a nice review if you can but leave us a review let us know how you think we're getting on anything that you do just helps us to uh Get up the rankings and it helps with the algorithm. Appreciate that. And I will chat to you all next week. Cheers. Bye-bye.